There is no amount of motivation or goodwill or good intent that anybody could put in that is going to make change happen. Change is only going to happen when you literally put in roadblocks to prevent the biases that you have from impacting your decisions. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. The Danish mathematician George Rash suggested that a statistical model is never accepted finally, only on trial. But what happens when cognitive biases and heuristics influence a court's evaluation of statistical evidence? Today, in episode 40 of Parsing Science, UCLA's Evelyn Carter and John Feingold discuss the sometimes selective use of social science research by U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Here's Evelyn Carter and John Feingold. My name is Evelyn, and I am a social psychologist, and I study how people decide what counts as racial bias and how they have conversations about them. And I ended up in Los Angeles by way of the Midwest. I'm a total Midwest transplant out here in LA. Grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and then went to school in Chicago, did grad school in Indiana, and then, you know, basically was tired of winter and was interested in being by the beach. And so I got a job out at UCLA. um, And that's how I ended up meeting John and then doing some of our work together. Hi, my name is John Feingold. I'm a research fellow in UCLA's Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, particularly um, in Bruin X, which is our sort of research and development team here. I have a, a JD. I went to UCLA for law school with a focus in critical race studies and really interested in all the interdisciplinary work that I get to do with folks like uh, Evelyn and the other members of our team. Trained as an experimental social psychologist and now serving as director of translational research, Evelyn's work tries to build bridges between the communities doing research and people who can benefit from those insights in informing their work. John, an attorney who clerked in the U.S. Court of Appeals and the Central District Court of California, examines the relationships between race, law, and the mind sciences. As this is a less-than-common pairing of academic scholarship, Doug and I started our conversation by asking Evelyn what the experience was like. As a social scientist, I was really excited to be able to write this paper with John because the law matters, right? And, you know, these decisions have implications for years and years because they set precedent. And so it was really exciting to be able to hear from John, like, what are the cases that really matter? And then be able to go in and say, oh my goodness, right? Like there's social science to explain what's going on here that can really help us, you know, parse this out. And so I think for me, it was thrilling because There are just so many opportunities that are missed, I think, when disciplines don't talk to each other. And this was one of those opportunities where we were able to say, wait a minute, we can actually make the data speak exactly to the issue that was being brought up within these decisions. It was really exciting because I love data. You know, I always say a million times, oh, this is my favorite study and that's my favorite study. And so it was really fun to be able to bring together some of just the foundational research in my field and apply it to this particular particular instance. And I think the thing that was really interesting for me as a social scientist was just how the terms that we use in social science mean sometimes very different things within the legal field. And so that was something that John and I talked a lot about was like, well, you know, if we were to say this in a social psych journal, it would mean this thing, but to lawyers, it's going to mean something very different. And so we need to just explain it or things like that. And so I think that that was really the biggest difference. And the other thing that I think is really interesting from what I noticed is that 
legal research is a lot based on really just dissecting. It's almost like a historical analysis, right? Dissecting the case and seeing what happened and, you know, really going back and forth about what a couple sentences meant and the implications of them. And so I find that kind of really in-depth analysis to be interesting. And, you know, as a social psychologist and in particular an experimental person, our job is really to say, well, how do people's perceptions change if this word is, you know, changed for a different word? I think for me, my question was always, okay, so what does it mean, right? How do, where, where is the data showing how people would react differently? And the legal scholars are, you know, kind of sitting and positing and really, you know, kind of almost like philosophers, right? Really teasing apart the implications of the possibilities. Um, and we go out and find the data. So I think it creates a nice marriage because, you know, in this paper, we were able to say, well, the legal scholars would say in theory that this is what happens. And thankfully, we have social psychologists who have tested similar questions. And so we could really bring it together in a nice way. Evelyn and John's paper focuses on two U.S. Supreme Court cases that set important precedent in how justices use or don't use social science research in their decisions. The first of these is McCluskey v. Kemp, which in 1987 upheld the conviction and eventual death sentence against Warren McCluskey, a black man accused of the armed robbery and murder of a white police officer. McCluskey's defense team argued that defendants charged with killing white victims were 4.3 times as likely to receive a death sentence than defendants charged with killing blacks. John explains the importance of this case with regard to jurisprudence, or legal theory, and the relevance of statistical evidence in the context of equal protections. In the context of equal protection challenges in which a plaintiff is alleging uh, discrimination, McCleskey really did constrain the ways in which a uh, criminal defendant, for instance, who's alleging that there was racial discrimination within part of the criminal justice process could leverage social science evidence. And so um, McCleskey was a case um, in which the plaintiff, who was an individual who had been sentenced to death under Georgia's capital punishment regime, with a team of social scientists presented this incredibly sort of rich set of data on racial disparities within Georgia's capital punishment system that showed that in many instances, if a case involved a black defendant and a white victim, that was the case in which uh, the defendant was far more likely to be sentenced to death uh, than in other iterations, for instance, if it was a white defendant. But what the Supreme Court did, what we talk about in the article, is it essentially said that that sort of statistical evidence of discrimination, because it could not establish that individual jurors on the particular jury that McCleskey found himself in, actually sentenced him to death um, with, quote unquote, purposeful discrimination, uh, that that statistical evidence, notwithstanding how rich it was, was doctrinally irrelevant. And so that is part of a broader trajectory uh, in which the Supreme Court has really constrained the ways in which statistical evidence of discrimination can be used to establish discrimination. Uh, And it's a case that remains notorious in part because even members of the court like Justice Scalia uh, were quite transparent in recognizing that, yes, it does seem that uh, there is racial discrimination in Georgia's capital punishment regime, but because the particular sort of discrimination that the Supreme Court required could not be proved. McCleskey did not win his case, and he was subsequently killed by the state of Georgia. The second case analyzed in their paper is Grutter versus Bollinger, which upheld the affirmative action admissions policy of the University of Michigan Law School, 
despite a white student's protest that she was denied admission because of her race. Though the cases were heard by the Supreme Court more than 20 years apart, several justices, including Chief Justice Rehnquist, sat on the court for both decisions. And though he found statistics irrelevant in the McCleskey case, Rehnquist's dissent in Grutter argued that the university's policy amounted to an unconstitutional quota system, since the absolute number of minority students admitted varied widely, as we asked John to explain next. Grutter v. Bollinger is a 2003 affirmative action case that came out of the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, and it was actually a sister case to Gratz v. Bollinger, which involved University of Michigan's undergrad college. The plaintiffs in both of those cases, uh, who were white, were alleging that the University of Michigan, again, both the law school in Grutter and the undergrad college uh, in Gratz, that its affirmative action admissions policy unconstitutionally discriminated against white applicants. The case in Gratz uh, succeeded, but the case in Grutter, which challenged the law school policy, failed. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision written by uh, Justice O'Connor, upheld that admissions policy. And the reason why we focus on Rehnquist uh, is because of the way that he is positioned both in McCleskey and v. Kemp and the way in which he interacted with social science or statistical evidence of discrimination in those two cases. So in McCleskey v. Kemp, he's part of the majority uh, that essentially renders doctrinally irrelevant this robust statistical evidence of discrimination. Uh, and then in Grutter, he, he's in the dissent. And his dissent argues that the University of Michigan Law School was unconstitutionally discriminating against white applicants. And the reason why we latched onto that is because some of the proof that he puts forward comprises six years of admissions data, um, really just descriptive statistics that essentially show the number of applicants across race and then the number of uh, admittees uh, across race, and, and then a bit of uh, information about sort of the mean entry-level LSAT scores and GPAs of those groups. And he elevates that uh, relatively bare-bones descriptive statistics uh, to make some very strong claims about a discrimination, even going so far as um, to say that it shows that the University of Michigan was admitting students of color who were less qualified than the plaintiff, Barbara Gruder. But one thing that we do point out in the paper is that Justice Rehnquist never actually defaults to what is in many ways the more sort of understandable rationale as to why the plaintiff uh, was denied admission, but it was the fact that she was likely just less qualified than other applicants, including applicants of color against whom she was competing. Evelyn and John's paper uses these two Supreme Court decisions to examine how confirmation bias, the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs, may influence justices' legal decisions. The first aspect of their theoretical framework for understanding how biases and heuristics can, often unconsciously, influence our thinking, is the elite student paradigm. We'll hear what Evelyn had to say about this bias after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. 
Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Evelyn Carter. As humans, we take in lots of information and our our brains are like computers essentially. And so we're processing all these bits of information and categorizing them. But a lot of times we make those categories based on the inputs that we tend to see. This is how those biases and heuristics can happen because we basically tend to see a certain set of activities or behaviors coming from a certain group of people or in a certain instance. And because it's made more salient, because we keep getting that input, that's the picture that comes to mind. One of my favorite examples of this is the draw a scientist test that was developed by social scientists who were really just interested in how kids mostly would draw scientists. And it's really cute, actually, if you go to Google and just type in draw a scientist. Well, cute and sad to see what they come up with. And basically the idea is that when you ask kids to draw a scientist, right, even like little third graders, they have this kind of, you know, mad scientist picture of a old guy with glasses wearing a white lab coat and a beaker. And the implications of that are that if the idea is that a scientist is somebody who always looks like that, then that means I as a woman am not going to be thought of as the typical scientist, right? And if I'm not thought of as a typical scientist, then that probably means I don't get the benefit of the respect that I deserve when I am in front of a group talking to people based on my scientific expertise. And so that is the really the implication, the downstream consequence of these various heuristics that we have, right? When we just have this picture in our mind or this default assumption that we make, it's pretty hard for us to deviate from that. And so we use that idea to draw on our elite student paradigm that we develop because the idea is basically that people are getting a lot of input about what the typical student looks like. And that typical student is usually white um, from a higher socioeconomic status. And, you know, the list goes on and on about kind of who the default assumption is. And the argument that we make that really is drawing on the stereotypes and heuristics that other social scientists have developed, is that when people have this picture in their heads, it can be very difficult to encounter information that deviates from that. And when you deviate from that kind of normal picture, all of the various other stereotypes that come to mind about those groups start to interfere. And so I think that's really where it gets interesting is to say, you know, it's not just about who the typical student is, but it's really about why the other people who could be and are reflected within our higher education system are not considered to be the typical student and the stereotypes that abound that really uh, prevent that kind of, you know, assumption that I belong here too, just as much as, you know, John does or anybody else. Since they can't be appealed, Supreme Court decisions have a unique role in the setting of legal precedents. As such, they are studied by legal scholars as a series of decisions that set jurisprudence. We followed up by asking John to put the two cases at the center of their study into the context of the legal theory being set by the Supreme Court over the last half century. So McCleskey v. Kemp, case decided in 1987, and then Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003. These cases are situated within about 40 years of a Supreme Court jurisprudence that is erecting quite rigid rules with respect to the essentially the type of proof and the amount of proof that a discrimination plaintiff needs to present in order to prevail uh, in court. And what happens over the course of these 40 years to where we are right now is a situation in which any sort of facially neutral state action. So that's when um, the state is not explicitly making decisions on the basis 
of race. If you're a discrimination plaintiff, you need to prove that the defendant, for instance, uh, a particular state entity engaged in intentional uh, racial discrimination. So essentially a conscious and intentional uh, mental state. And that's for facially neutral state action. And that's an incredibly um, hard burden to meet as a plaintiff. Now, on the other hand, what the Supreme Court often refers to as a racial classification. Um, So anytime when the state is explicitly and expressly taking race into account, that automatically, essentially presumptively, is unconstitutional and places a very large burden on the state uh, to defend it. And folks have sort of long debates about whether those sort of standards and that doctrinal arrangement is good or bad. But in practice, what it means is that all government action that has a tremendous uh, racially disparate impact is presumptively constitutional, notwithstanding the case that this spans an incredible number of practices and sectors of American life that function to reproduce and perpetuate racial inequality, much of which is the cause of uh, quite overt and intentional racial discrimination that's not necessarily from the here and now, um, but from the relatively distant past. And then on the other hand, any affirmative government action that takes race into account, for instance, what we often think of as affirmative action, that is designed to ameliorate uh, or mitigate racial inequality and promote racial equality. Those are programs that are actually very, very difficult for the government to successfully defend. And so we've come to a point in which, in many ways, uh, equal protection doctrine is far more hostile to government action that is designed to promote racial equality uh, than government action that actually uh, reproduces it. The second aspect of Evelyn and John's theoretical framework is the justification suppression model of prejudice, which is used to explain how systems, such as the law, maintain structures of racial hierarchy. The model describes how common prejudices, which we all have, are dealt with internally, as Evelyn explains. Basically, the idea behind this model is that we as people do not like to think of ourselves as prejudiced. However, instead of actually trying to change our biases, we just either justify them away, right? So we explain them away and say, oh, it's not that bad. Or we suppress them and say, no, no, I don't have them. And so one of the things that I think was really interesting about the justification and suppression model is that the justifiers, the things that exist that help us express the prejudice without having to be worried about being sanctioned by others or by feeling bad internally because we've failed to meet this egalitarian standard we hold for ourselves. These justifiers are very helpful because we don't actually have to change our behavior. And so the various ways that social science evidence was used in these cases seemed like a perfect example of a justification because the justices didn't have to pay attention to the social science and really deal with the implications of what it would mean if an entire state really was involved in this kind of structural discrimination. They could just say, oh, no, no, we don't really want to listen to this data. It's not you know, strong enough. The evidence is not sound. So it's really by thinking about our motivations as humans to avoid the label of being biased to avoid having to contend with the fact that interpersonally and structurally discrimination absolutely still happens. And the ways in which that motivation can really hinder us from paying attention to all of the signs that are there and instead just explaining it away as an anomaly or as weak science or not strong evidence. 
we routinely depend on causation to explain what has happened to us or to make useful predictions about what will happen to us next. Not surprisingly, what appears as causal is perhaps more often than not just a matter of chance. Determining causal relationships based on social science data, however, requires robust evidence that a cause precedes an effect, that the cause and effect always happen together, and that no other alternative explanations of the effect exist. This led Doug and I to wonder, how well did the Chief Justice use social science data to support his decisions? Although one of the things that we really try to do um, in social psychology is to say, you know, if X happens, then Y will occur. We live in a world in which there are so many other things that influence outcomes. And so to be able to look at descriptive statistics and see patterns and be like, oh, I have seen the causal relationship. Like, that's just not good science, right? And so all descriptive statistics can do is show you interesting trends that you can look deeper into, but we have control variables which say, do the trends that I observe mean anything if we hold other things constant, right? So if I think that a person's race and LSAT score are predicting the likelihood they get in, I should also look more deeply at other factors that might influence that outcome. Um, And so descriptive statistics just don't allow you to look at those other factors and to really, you know, parse apart the extent to which they are impacting an outcome. And so it was just really one of those times, I think, where I was just like, oh, no, this is why we need people who understand this research helping to shape how it's used, because I recognize that even though people want the really simple answer, I think actually what my plea to people who want to incorporate social science into their judicial decision making is to allow space for scientists like me to present that complexity. And I can still give you right a concrete answer, but I am always going to give you the caveats. I'm always going to give you the other things to consider. In a recent lawsuit, Harvard's holistic admissions policy has been challenged on the basis that it's actually a cover for racial discrimination. The case, as with the McCluskey and Grutter cases, has social science data at the core of legal arguments. Though the Harvard case has not yet reached the U.S. Supreme Court, the potential for confirmation bias to enter into legal decisions is readily apparent. Ryan and I asked John for his thoughts about the implications of social science on this case. I appreciate um, that you brought up the Harvard litigation because it's just interesting there's so many perils and i guess i want to suggest a couple things one is i think that the general sort of media and public is understanding the harvard litigation as a case involving what you could think of as new school affirmative action and so it's these um, race conscious admissions programs that pit black and brown students against their asian counterparts and the main point that i want to make is that that is absolutely inaccurate, just descriptively in describing what is happening at Harvard. But it nonetheless becomes the prevailing frame through which we understand this case. And that does some really interesting things. One of the biggest things is it, it essentially elides or extracts white applicants from the sort of zero-sum admissions conversation and debate in ways that's really interesting. One is it sort of puts to the side sort of the whole legacy conversation, which we can talk about. But what it also does, it, it blinds us to what the plaintiffs in this case have actually argued to the district court. And so if you look at the pretrial brief that was filed by the plaintiffs, and you look at all of the statistical evidence from their expert who ran a ton of quantitative statistical analyses. If you look at it, what 
the plaintiff's expert says is that the benefit that accrues from the anti-Asian bias is going principally to white applicants. It's not actually going to black and brown applicants. And that just reflects a deep mismatch between descriptively what's happening on the ground and the way in which the case has been framed and we're largely thinking about it. And so really what the plaintiffs are describing isn't new school affirmative action, but it's really just old school discrimination within an admissions system that also happens to employ affirmative action. And so really what we have here is a system in which there's at least some compelling evidence uh, that Harvard does discriminate in different sorts of ways against Asian applicants, uh, but the driver isn't affirmative action. And the beneficiaries aren't black and brown students, but rather their white counterparts who, uh, for many of the reasons Evelyn was talking about, we just see as sort of natural members of the Harvard environmental landscape. And so it's very hard for many people just to uh, intuitively question whether a white student uh, deserves to be there. In science, cherry-picking refers to an analytical fallacy stemming from the use of a few cases to demonstrate a point, as if those examples demonstrate a trend when they may not. In reviewing Chief Justice Rehnquist's decisions in the two cases presented in their paper, we asked Evelyn did the Chief Justice inappropriately cherry-pick his social science data. So I think the answer is yes, but I don't say that he was cherry picking necessarily as an indictment of character. I don't think he was doing it intentionally, but this is where going back to those biases and heuristics is really helpful because we as humans, again, we really like information that tells us that we are accurate. Oftentimes when we are searching for information, we're doing a really bad job of doing a comprehensive search in everyday life. Does it really matter all that much if I am looking for information that confirms my previously held beliefs and eschewing information that goes against it? Not so much necessarily. But when it comes to people who are making decisions that track with racial stereotypes that become jurisprudence that dictate the way that we behave for years and years to come in our society, it matters. And so I think that Chief Justice Rehnquist, but he's doing it when it comes to people's lives, when it comes to this idea of who gets admission and who does not. Um, And it's not based on a love of, you know, some food that's not good for you. It's based on racial stereotypes that are very deeply ingrained in our society. You know, it's not as though he was saying, I will take inferential statistics in one instance and not in another. He was saying, literally, I am going to take the instance in which the statistics are less comprehensive um, and go toward those and then eschew the higher standard for inferential practices. And so I think that that makes it particularly egregious. But again, it's, it's, an, it's another example of something that we do as humans every single day. But, you know, when it's your job to make these kinds of decisions, we rely on you to, you know, be a little bit better than the average human. Since we all have biases that influence our decisions, Evelyn and John make clear that their work isn't an indictment of Chief Justice Rehnquist. They do, however, make the case that when decisions are likely to have substantial impact on people's lives, it's our responsibility to put processes in place to reduce the chances of these biases influencing our decisions, as they talk with us about next. Something that I think is really helpful, though, is just to recognize that There is no amount of motivation or goodwill or good intent that anybody could put in that is going to make change happen. Change is only going to happen when you literally put in roadblocks. 
to prevent the biases that you have from impacting your decisions. That's where I think things like being accountable to another person, creating friction in the decision process. So literally making it have to take longer, forcing people to search through um, a couple sites that you know, if you're looking online, for example, look at a couple sites that are going to completely go against what you think the prevailing evidence should be. Go look for information that challenges your belief. All of those different kinds of strategies, the ones that really, you know, force you to get outside of your head and look for other information and then force you to really roll that information around in your head and talk somebody else about it are going to be the strategies. But I mean, that's that's still imperfect, right? Because even if even as I say that, if I pick a friend as my accountability partner who shares exactly the same views as I do, I might be talking to them about my argument. They're like, yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying. and I totally get it. You're exactly right. And that's not actually creating any friction in the process. It's not forcing me to contend with an alternative viewpoint. And I'll just add very briefly. So Evelyn was right that good intentions will never do it alone, but good intentions are necessary. We have to be internally motivated to engage in less bias and decision-making. Uh, and we have to recognize the fact that we all essentially over the course of our lives have unintentionally downloaded various preferences, whether it's for Pepsi over Coke or over one gender or another. Um, and, and so just we have to own that and do what we can because if we don't start, then um, we're definitely not going to get there. And then with respect to judges, so something that judges could do, so at least federal judges who have clerks, is for judges to really create environments in which one of the roles of their clerks is to know um, where a judge might sort of impulsively lean in a particular case and to push back uh, in a way that really is designed not necessarily to get to a particular result, but to make sure that the best arguments from both parties are essentially in equal poise in front of the judge. That was Evelyn Carter and John Feingold discussing their article, Eyes Wide Open, What Social Science Can Tell Us About the Supreme Court's Use of Social Science, published on August 8, 2018 in the Northwestern University Law Review. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org E40, along with bonus content and other material that they discussed during the episode. Reviewing Parsing Science on iTunes is a great way to help others discover the show. Head to parsingscience.org review to learn how to do so. Or if you have a comment or suggestion for future topics or guests, visit us at parsingscience.org suggest. You can also leave us a message toll-free at 1-866-EXPLORIT, X-P-L-O-R-I-T. Next time, in episode 41 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Jonathan Williams from the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Mainz, Germany. He'll talk with us about his research into objectively evaluating the age-appropriateness of movies just by analyzing the chemical fingerprint that audiences emit when they breathe. Basically, what you have is a box of people and you can frighten this box of people with a horror film, or you can make them laugh with a comedy film all at the same time. And all of their gaseous emissions, if you like, from the skin, from the hair, from the, from the breath, uh, they're all swept up through the ventilation system. And we simply uh, wait in a technical room at the back with our inlet uh, stuck in the ventilation system and just monitor how the signals change with time. We hope that you'll join us again. 